Welcome to the Stan Sigmund Leadership and Innovation Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Jeffrey Babb. Join me in insightful conversation with business leaders and innovators as we explore the ideas, principles, and values that have informed their success. Today we're speaking with Bill Hope, uh, a friend of Stan Sigmund. To start this episode, Bill, please tell us more about Stan Sigmund, the friends of Stan Sigmund, and finally, why listeners would be interested in Stan Sigmund's approach to leadership and innovation. Well, I think Stan was a unique leader, um, someone that was tough but fair, simple and yet complex, um, very direct, and at the same time, uh, a man of few words. He was a smart risk taker, very well respected, and at the same time, very humble. Stan was a man with high integrity, high expectations, and something about him, you always wanted to do your very best for Stan and, and the team. And when I reflect on the kind of innovation, the business results, the way Stan built teams, you couldn't help become a student of his leadership. Um, hopefully, we'll share some insights uh, about Stan that students can connect with and they can use it to develop as, as they find their way as new leaders. Outstanding. Yeah, I've, I've found um, in the classroom, and it's pretty timeless that um, yeah, I think it's a human thing that uh, people do well um, with role models and exemplars. Um, there's something about that um, patterning that's really useful. Well, Bill, I really appreciate you being here and taking the time to participate here. Before we get too much further along, could you introduce yourself and tell us a bit about your background? Sure. I have a bachelor's and master's degree in electrical engineering from Georgia Tech. So I'm an engineer by training. Um, I've spent uh, 30 years of my career, mostly in telecom, in a variety of different roles. Um, I retired from AT&T in 2018 as the president of technology operations, where my team was responsible for the planning, engineering, construction, maintenance, and repair of AT&T's wireless and wireline networks around the globe. Excellent. And how is it that um, you came to be uh, working with and for Stan Sigmund? I mean, one of the nice things um, about talking you to, to you today is that as the backdrop of the podcast is the Stan Sigmund Leadership and Innovation Podcast, um, not exclusively so, but we definitely want to use that as a um, you know, point of gravity to explore leadership and innovation. So how is it that you came across or came about to be working with and for Stan? Well, when uh, Bell South and SBC formed Singular Wireless, which was a joint venture uh, between the two companies, um, I was working in the network organization and uh, Stan came in as the CEO of Singular. And when, uh, when Stan came in, uh, to, to lead Singular, I worked very closely with him in a number of different roles and mainly in, in the network side of the business. Uh, one of the areas that I worked very closely with him is on the uh, Singular Wireless AT&T uh, wireless acquisition. We worked very closely together to not only get the deal approved uh, through the regulatory process, but also integrate the two companies as you know, they came together after the merger was approved. Spent a lot of time with Stan and 
learned a lot from Stan uh, in, in the many different roles that, that we were able to work together in. Um, what a thank you. What about that uh, that collaboration? Certainly, it seems like there was um, um, working together to meet a challenge. So, when is it that you first started noticing that there was something special about you know Stan's approach to leadership uh, and the way you know Stan could, as you I think you would put it this way, um, put together a team? Yeah, he uh, you you noticed the first day um, he came in with uh, his view of what should be done differently inside of Singular Wireless, the framework that he thought about uh, how we should measure success in the company, um, the things that he would change right away to send a message that this is how we would do business. Um, it, it, he came in very organized, uh, very much with a vision of how the company would come together and it was clear from that moment that um, he knew exactly what he wanted to accomplish and how he was going to accomplish it and what the guardrails were going to be or what the guidelines, the operating principles of, of the organization would be that he would be holding the team accountable to. So I think he was very clear on his expectations right up front. And I think that makes it uh, a lot easier for people to understand what's expected of them and um, how Stan would define success uh, inside of the framework that he put together. Did you, um, in that early um, comprehension, getting to know, um, along the way, did you get a sense or did you have, um, did you wonder at one point, well, I wonder where this comes from? Yeah, I, I obviously Stan had, Stan had had a lot of success in, in previous, uh, you know, roles inside of, of the business. So, I mean, you knew he was an accomplished leader from the beginning. So he had years of wireless experience, very successful in that space. And I think he was taking that playbook and saying, we're going to run that playbook here inside of Singular. And there were a lot of things that didn't fit inside of the playbook that he wanted to make very clear aren't going to be the way we do business you know, on a go forward basis and things that needed to be added to our playbook that we weren't uh, using at the time. And that framework uh, helped us, you know, kind of get organized, get structured. And I mean, it was, uh, you knew exactly what you had to stop doing and what you needed to start doing right away. And that's, uh, that's uh, and I've heard this um, as I've been able to speak with guests um, on the subject, um, this is a recurring theme. Uh, so that that clarity of purpose and message uh, seems to be um, almost an invariant uh, recounting um, that others I've spoken to, uh, that's their observation about Stan Sigmund. Absolutely. He was, he was very direct, um, which is, you didn't have to guess where he was coming from. And he was very clear on his expectations. And you know, one of my favorite uh, Stan sayings is inspect what you expect. Hmm. And he would do exactly that. He would tell you what he expected. And for those key things that he thought were important, um, he would roll up his sleeves and inspect exactly how you were performing against those expectations. And that, uh, you know, is a, a very strong signal on 
what he expected the rest of his leadership to do as well. So that's a very empirical approach. Yes. Which, which probably uh, keeps, um, uh, really supports a highly so an ethical component uh, because it's very, very straightforward. So we're on the topic of leadership. Um, I find particularly more than higher education concept and particularly among students, and it could be really the case just broadly in the public, that leadership as a concept, which I would perhaps maybe uh, say it's a trait and possibly a disposition, I think it's often misunderstood. So from your experience, why is leadership such an important component of innovation and really importantly, the diffusion of that innovation? That's a good question. I think leadership is about creating a shared vision, giving the team the tools they need to be successful, the guidelines to operate within, and then turning them loose to achieve the unexpected. And in many cases, what a lot of people think would be impossible. And my view is leadership is about creating that environment that encourages smart risk-taking, an environment that harnesses the innovation of a diverse group of thinkers that kind of push each other to do their very best. And if you don't have leadership, you don't have the structure to focus individual capabilities to the benefit of everyone. And it's often used one plus one, you know, doesn't equal three in a lot of cases, but with the right leader, one plus one really does equal three. And that leadership and that um, capability to harness the potential of people is, is critical for innovation and it's critical for you know, the diffusion of, of the capability. Thank you. I, I, it seems to me then that um, as much as Stan uh, was able to, we're, we're speaking to his leadership style, um, he, as he was able to make himself clear, it seems like he had the capacity to develop an understanding of others. I think so. Stan, Stan was a person that he's very humble. So you could, he'd be very comfortable talking to an executive as equally comfortable talking to the cell site technician that was working out in the field. And so, and he understood exactly what both of those audiences needed. And oftentimes he would take, you know, input from the field and bring it back and say, look, we need to do something differently here um, because our frontline workers are, you know, facing some challenges in these areas. And he would, you know, be equally comfortable, you know, doing something strategic with an executive, you know, and, you know, both of those, it's not very often you see somebody that can kind of go up and down in an organization like that and have a true understanding of what those various uh, constituencies needed and, um, and the leadership adaptation that was required to, to you know, really get the best out of, out of both of those audiences. So it seems to me that speaking to different members of the team in their context really reinforced uh, the willingness to be led, which is probably an equal opposite side of the coin. I agree. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, 
I'll shift that because, you know, what we'd want to um, maybe communicate to a listener would be, uh, they might ask themselves this, well, that sounds really great. How can I do that? And I pose the question as being one potentially of nurture versus nature to previous guests. And it centers on whether leadership is innate or can be developed. What's your take on that? I love this question. I'm uh, definitely in the nurture camp. Um, I think about my own leadership development. Um, I would learn something from every boss. Sometimes it was a leader like Stan, where you wanted to model what you saw, Mm -hmm. how he led, how he inspired people, and how you learned so many important lessons along the way as a result of that. Sometimes it's from a boss where you learn what you don't want to model. And those lessons are equally important. And from bosses that you respect and you want to model and ones you um, maybe don't want to adopt their style on, uh, those are all kind of things that form you as a leader. And you, you know, kind of infuse the traits that you think are the ones that you um, want to model and you make a conscious decision not to do things that you don't want to model. And I right. think that's part of, you know, the shaping of, of you as a leader is, you know, kind of finding um, those leaders you want to model and, and to really spend time, you know, working on how to develop those leadership traits in your own style. Right, right. It seems to me that a lot of uh, listening to others uh, discuss leadership uh, as it pertains to innovation and certainly as it pertains to lessons they learn from Stan Sigmund. Um, I've had this observation. I could see it myself to some degree, but I've observed it in students and others over the years. And I would characterize it as an attraction or calling to get inside a problem space and understand it and, of course, find solutions. So even if that is an inclination or disposition where in this case, you're attracted to problem solving and, and, you know, that could be a helpful way of embracing or engaging. Do you feel that that might be also an important component or, or if not, why? No, I, I completely agree with that. Um, I think one of the most valuable attributes of a leader is, you know, some critical thinking skills. Mm -hmm. Uh, dissecting a problem, using data to guide your decision-making, looking at problems through multiple lenses, having an open mind to all possible solutions. Some people are just wired that way. They want to know how things work um, the way they do. You know, they, they have an, I'll call it intellectual curiosity. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's one of those, I'll call it natural attributes that enable a person to be a very good leader in a particular area. And so I I think it's a fair point that, you know, although uh, leadership can be developed, um, there are certain attributes that if they're innate in a particular person, it becomes kind of the nucleus of what you build around. Mm -hmm. Well, do you think, uh, I've seen, I've observed that as well. I think some of the problems I encounter, um, you know, let's just say among students, but I think it's a human problem is if there's not a mental model 
for leadership, or there's usually a received model that says, you know, it's being the boss and telling people what to do. But it seems that the, you know, dedicate, staying dedicated to the solution space, you know, into performance, um, it, it seems like it's a habit or disposition that could be practiced and learned like, like possibly any other skill. Absolutely. I, I think there is, uh, again, this kernel of what you, what you are as a person, where your natural tendencies go. And you kind of build on that kernel to be your, I'll call it authentic self. Sure. You, know, you, you can, I would never be a Stan Sigmund. That's not my authentic self, mm-hmm. but I look at attributes um, that I saw in Stan and said, how, how would I adapt those to fit my authentic style and where my natural strengths are? And right. I think that, it, and, and it's work. You're exactly right. You have to work on that. You have to be consciously dedicated to developing that capability in yourself and to be, I'll call it intellectually honest with yourself where you, where you don't meet your own expectations. Right. And, right. You know, when you're, when you look at that and you're willing to look in the mirror and say, that wasn't my best effort, or I could have been a better leader in these areas, or I could have exercised more of this particular attribute that I've seen a leader I respect uh, exhibit, then those are all opportunities to go to work the next time. And again, as you said, be dedicated and purposeful about, you know, building that capability as a leader. Good. I I think we're, uh, if I could transition us forward a bit, it seems to me then that there is a, 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 there's a mindfulness to this. There, there's a, um, a focus to this. So this makes me uh, recall a point in my own journey um, when I was working my PhD. Uh, my PhD advisor at the time reminded me um, that serendipity favors the prepared. So what does preparation for success and leadership entail in your opinion? Yeah, I, that reminds me of one of Stan's favorite sayings that a job well planned is a job half done. Uh-huh. I think it, it takes a good plan to put you in a position to succeed. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, you have to execute and you have to know what those early leading indicators are that tell you, tells you, you know, it's, it's time to adjust the plan before it's too late to succeed. Right, right. And so, you know, there's, you almost have to, again, it's this idea of understanding what those milestones are, the mile markers as you go through this journey and say, okay, Am I where I thought I would be um, as I'm, you know, preparing for success and leadership? And if not, um, what do I do to course correct? Where do I need to focus and put more energy where maybe I'm not accomplishing the results I hoped I would accomplish at this stage of my mile marker? And I think part of that is really having a good plan, but it's, you know, equally important to to course correct and execute on, you know, what the feedback of individuals are telling you, your success in your own personal assessment of leadership, your uh, peers, what they're telling you, 
uh, all of these are, you know, kind of feedback loops for you to understand, are you on the right track or where do you need to adjust the plan? Does that make sense? Oh, it does. Um, it, it really, I think um, there's, I called it mindfulness earlier, but what I hear you saying is this is also um, a reflective uh, mechanism or dynamic, um, which is part and parcel of a self-awareness, which is, is vital. Um, that's a good segue to um, kind of the next portion we want to get into. And I'll give the um, lead in uh, by reminding the listener that a year ago, um, the Friends of Stan segment in West Texas a University and the Paul and Virginia Engler College of Business um, hosted an inaugural Stan segment leadership and innovation series on campus here. And the featured guest at the time was Ralph De La Vega. And as Ralph was preparing for that event, along with um, a Paul and Mark, who I've had as uh, the guests in the previous episode, they had developed a core set of values and principles that are reflective of Stan's approach to business. And what I'll do, maybe just for the benefit, for your, our benefit and, and the listener, um, the principles list they had come up with at the time were authenticity, integrity, accountability, teamwork, execution, people, communication, empathy, respect, and vision. In preparation to speak to each other today, um, you had selected um, execution as a principle to focus on. Um, so I think I'm starting to get an answer to this by listening to you. But the question is, why is execution so critical to leadership and innovation? Well, I think there are a lot of great ideas, a lot of plans that have been built over the years that never realized their full potential because of lack of execution. When you look at innovations that have been, you know, kind of true game changers, you can see that leadership and execution play a key role. I mean, it's, it's fairly obvious. It's the right vision. It's the right people. It's overcoming adversity. It's pivoting when you're on the wrong track. It's problem solving along the way. All these are attributes of good leadership and execution. And sorry, go ahead, please. Go ahead, please. No, what I was I was going to ask just to clarify is, uh, so we're speaking to um, innovation. Uh, leadership, execution, which um, is doing what uh, what to elaborate what I'd ask uh, you to think about too is so what can a listener, particularly a student, understand about doing and failing? Yeah, there's there's a lot of lessons in failure too. I mean, when you're executing as a you know plan as a leader, you need to focus on those vital few areas that are critical to success you know, roll up your sleeves and inspect them to make sure that they're going according to plan. But things don't always go according to plan. And sometimes you don't get the results you expect. And, you know, just because you haven't heard anything that is, things are going to the contrary, doesn't necessarily mean that things are going well either. And one of the important things and this is an environment that Stan created it, when I made the comment earlier about being a smart risk taker. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I think he would uh, encourage smart risk taking um, as long as, and, and failure, as long as you didn't make the same mistake twice. 
Right, right. And so, it, you know, I think that you can't ask a team to, you know, kind of push the envelope on things and then beat them up when they fail uh, because then nobody's willing to take a risk. Right. So failure is a great teacher and you learn something from every failure. Um, and from that, you know what not to do the next time, or you know how to pattern things in a way that says, okay, in these circumstances, these patterns work and these patterns don't work. And it, it's a, it's a learning journey that everybody goes on. And that's, you know, part of your life's experience is those failures inform how you'll be successful the next time. Do you think then that there's a degree, I think there's certainly a degree of confidence that that's what I hear, but the confidence is, is uh, gained through execution um, and this willingness to take risks, even if failure is a result, so long as you use that to learn from. I think that's exactly right. And, you know, there's a lot of people back to the point I was making before about, you know, making sure that you measure it along the way, mm -hmm. because fast failure is, is important. What you don't want to do is spend a year working on a project and then fail at the end of it mm -hmm. because you didn't have the right measurement system in place to know that you were off track earlier in the process. So having that early indications of what are, what are the milestones along the way, the success indicators along the way earlier in the process so that you can course correct or that you can fail fast and, and make the changes that you need to make rather than you know, wait to the very end and have it not all come together and work for you. Um, it's uh, those things usually come up and bite you every time if you wait to the very end for it to come together. Right. In the, um, I, I, I teach a software project class and that's why uh, the students will consider or learn about a family of uh, software methods called agile methods. And they, they really espouse the same values, which is, you know, have good metrics, be empirical, and determine these milestones early so that the consequence of failure at the end, as you pointed, um, is, you know, minimized or mitigated to some degree. Yeah, it's more manageable that way, exactly. Right. So this seems um, um, another angle I wanted to take just to kind of understand execution um, is there's a striking quote um, I've picked up along the way, and I don't know if it's attributed to um, there's a Marine general named Robert Barrow. Some people say it's uh, Omar Bradley um, in the Second World War. But the, the saying goes something about like this. Amateurs talk about tactics, but professionals study logistics. The, com the compelling part of such a quote is that it says something about execution. But to me, it almost seems to say something about some of the mindfulness that I think you've, you know, you've been characterizing it against. So what's your take on a statement like this and, and how does such a perspective relate to execution? Yeah, I think I'll share a story on this because I, I think it, uh, it kind of really speaks to, to this particular uh, quote. Okay. Um, when Singular acquired AT&T Wireless for $41 billion, which at the time was the largest all cash deal in history, um, I was leading the integration team working for Stan and Ralph and uh, we had a vision to provide an integrated new company experience for our customers before the holiday selling season. 
it featured a new product that was called the StarTech. You probably remember that, the mm-hmm. Motorola flip phone. So it tells you how long ago it was. <laughs> but uh, we had you know, meticulously planned the day one experience. But the close of the deal kept being delayed, which was you know, putting extra pressure on constantly refining the execution plan over and over. On the night before day one, this customer experience, after our retail stores closed, uh, you know, late at night, we completely rebranded every AT&T wireless store, installed new point of sale software, and had completely new merchandising set up for over 2,000 retail stores overnight. And the employees, not just store employees, but employees at headquarters, employees in almost every organization volunteered and were assigned to a store to pull this off. And they worked well into the night to make that all happen. And it was really a great case study in in logistics and in flawless execution, but also um, being mindful about what it would take to go pull this off. And, you know, everyone thought the new singular would fall on his face, but that team executed so well. We beat every other wireless carrier in the fourth quarter and gave the merge company a great start. I mean, it was a, it was a job well-planned and well done. And it's uh, one of those things that, that attention to detail, that mindfulness about uh, contingency planning, that uh, focus that you put on the little details that, that make all the difference in terms of success or failure uh, are, you know, the components that really speak to that quote. It's all about implementation. Right. I, I appreciate that. Uh, that. That makes quotes like that um, make more sense to me. And that's uh, when I, when I react to execution in a bro- as a broader concern, um, that's what kind of came to mind to me. But it seems to me that execution is also about um, kind of basically a fidelity to good habit and mindful habit so that, you know, you're not repeating mistakes um, and forgiving mistakes and not repeating them. Um, I've recently had a discussion with some of my research colleagues and it's related to execution where in this case we contextualize it in uh, against mastering, you know, so as a concept. So another popular quote about mastery is something about like it takes 10,000 hours working at or practicing something to achieve mastery. So in a statement like that, um, where path to mastery could be both mindset, but then yet persistent execution, um, what would be your reaction to that? Well, I think from a mindset perspective, you can never never stop believing there's a path to success. Mm -hmm. The minute you adopt a mindset to the contrary, it's kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so you always have to have a mindset that says, there's a path to get this done. And you draw upon your experiences, you draw upon your failures, um, you draw upon you know, creative thinking, of creative problem solving, uh, to be able to maintain that mindset of uh, there's a path to success. And then, go ahead, I'm sorry. No, 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 please, please. Then the persistent execution consists of analyzing the problems, using the data to guide your thinking and decision-making, 
thinking out of the box to find solutions. And you'll try a lot of things along the way that won't work, mm -hmm. but you'll learn from each of them. And if you're persistent, you can achieve success. And I think the reason Gladwell says it's 10,000 hours is mm -hmm. you have to be presented with enough of these problems in different situations to have an, a better chance of knowing what's likely to work and what's not. That's the practice that builds the mental muscle and also the work ethic to achieve the mastery that, that you're talking about. Right. And it seems to be connected to habit, persistence, dedication, immersion, um, basically. And, and to me, I suppose I included this because they felt like they would support execution um, because if there wouldn't be this mindfulness of reflective loop, um, you could execute poorly repeatedly. And I, I wasn't sure. I, it didn't feel to me like ex, you know, execution as a principle um, meant that. Um, without a doubt. I mean, execution for me means success. Mm -hmm. um, otherwise, it's just the matter. It's the, the activity of just doing making the effort mm -hmm. Ex execution for me is you've gotten to a successful outcome, not that you've done the work. Right. And it's that's, that's very vital for um, students. If we take it to that context, one, um, one of the interesting things about the student's learning journey is to evolve to that realization. And is you know as there's a lot of we would call it formative and summative evaluation of, of how students perform because as a student you know they're there to become and in that becoming that is a vital transition to see um effort is good because it's necessary i mean without it we wouldn't have anything to discuss but effort that culminates in moving the ball forward and you know, incrementing towards success, that's sometimes a challenge. And it's a challenge because maybe some of the, um, you know, dynamics or design of their educational experiences might more acknowledge um, effort than what you're describing as execution. Yeah, I'll just share a quick uh, story on that because we were, uh, you know, organized into various uh, geographies for, and each geography had a vice president and general manager. And each of those uh, VPGMs would be stack ranked mm -hmm. in terms of the four hours, which were our performance criteria inside of, inside of the wireless organization. And Every year, Stan would go through and look at uh, the top performers and the bottom performers. And the bottom performers typically were given ample opportunity. Um, but if they didn't perform, if they didn't execute well, then they were no longer VPGMs. Mm -hmm. And part of that is they may have worked very hard. They may have uh, put in lots of effort. But at the end of the day, the results really mattered. And you know, that was the bar that you were held to is to you know, deliver for the business. And effort doesn't equal you know, flawless execution. Effort mm -hmm. is you know, one of the ingredients, as you said, 
but not sufficient. It's a necessary ingredient, but not sufficient ingredient. That's why I brought up um, mastery and it's Gladwell, right? Yes. Okay. I just, uh, um, thank you for putting that back in my brain. Um, I brought up mastery because I feel like this reflective path and learning from doing is also really important to acclimatize to the success imperative. No, and so many times a student could see it as an insurmountable cliff, but you know I would propose you don't climb the cliff directly, you know you increment up it, and so I you know and that 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 perform it almost develops a, a degree of performance anxiety if they if a student particularly were to hear or possibly to anybody, well you know if you don't succeed you fail, well yes that is um, um, the the cold plainness of the reality, but. I'm not sure people operating at that level haven't on a mastery path worked themselves up to that. Oh, I, I completely agree. I don't mean to uh, um, infer for your student body that th these were experienced um, and very capable executives that had years and years of experience climbing the mountain. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I think it's an interesting visual and I, I like the idea of it. I kind of think about it as switchbacks, you know, as mm -hmm. you, there's no uh, road that goes up a mountain that goes directly up a mountain. Mm -hmm. It typically goes, you know, in different switchbacks along the way until you make it to the top of the mountain. And that implies that there's not a quick path to the top of the mountain. Uh, it's a long and winding path to the top of the mountain. But there's a reason for that, because if you try to go straight to the top of the mountain, more than likely you'd fall off the mountain. <laughs> so there, there's a reason they de design them that way, because there aren't too many people can, that can go straight to the top of the mountain. It takes a winding road of experiences and 10,000 hours, if that's the magic number, uh, for you to develop the experience, the uh, the wealth of knowledge that it's that's required the practice the um, intentional thinking on uh, and reflectiveness as you've put it mm -hmm. to to really improve yourself to a level that you're able to um to achieve success right and that that um i i, I in kind i do like the switchback and and that's that's that definitely uh, helps with the you're going to inch up the mountain but I, that's very useful in disavowing what's easy in a casual comprehension to see success as some rocket to the top. And maybe that makes for good stories, but it doesn't seem to be the case at how most people scale the mountain. And, and I think that's an important calibration um, for anybody contemplating the subjects we're discussing. Um, let's go ahead and um, kind of move on to contextualizing some of the leadership and innovation series goals and objectives we have, uh, where the big motivation behind the Stan Sigmund Leadership and Innovation Series is to allow aspects of Stan's experience, his story, to resonate with others, to inspire, um, to motivate. So I had read the list previously. Um, I could read it again. Uh, let's see. It would be, because I'll just edit this out. Um, 
authenticity, integrity, accountability, teamwork, execution, people, communication, empathy, respect, and vision. So from that earlier list, do you think some may be more resonant than others with execution? I do. I, I think if you think about stands, values, and principles, a lot of them apply to successful execution. Mm-hmm. You think about, I have a visual of execution at the center and the principles of vision, communication, people, teamwork, accountability, integrity in kind of a circle around them. Mm-hmm. And I view them as, you know, the most complementary, not to say that the others, um, if you had, aren't important, but if you had to pick some key ingredients, I would say those are the ones uh, because you can't execute without a good vision. Mm-hmm. You've got to be capable of communicating that vision broadly with the team. You have to have the right team on the field in terms of people, and they have to work together as a team to achieve success. Um, They need to be held accountable so you achieve the results, but you want to achieve the results in the right way in one in which, you know, you've done the right thing for the right reasons where the integrity piece comes in. So I think all of them are, you know, complementary in that regard. Excellent. I appreciate that. Well, uh, uh, that's about our time for today. Uh, And I really want to thank you, Bill, for joining us today. Um, I like to try to give the guests um, a, a last word of sorts. There might have been something I missed or just something additional you want to add or, or anything you'd care to share. You know, I've had the good fortune to work with Stan on a number of game changers, the singular merger we talked about, the iPhone launch, launching 3G in the U.S. And, you know, I watched him apply the attributes with great success. And I wanted to model a lot of those same behaviors. And I hope the listeners will appreciate how those attributes helped us execute, sometimes under some pretty difficult circumstances. I hope the students will find a leader like Stan or a professor that they respect and try to learn and grow as leaders like Stan helped me grow. Great. Thank you so much, Bill. I appreciate joining us here today. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thanks again to Bill Hogue for being our guest today on the Stan Sigmund Leadership and Innovation Podcast. I really enjoyed our conversation on execution, and I find that I better understand its vital role in leadership and innovation. I'll see you again in future episodes.